This evening I'd like to talk about staying in touch. Meditation is really a very simple path. It is a path of learning what it means to actually stay in touch. Learning what it means to be close and intimate with what is happening in this moment in our bodies, our feelings, our thoughts, our relationship with all things. I think at times we do forget this simplicity. And we think of meditation often as being a journey to somewhere else, preferably to a better place. We think of meditation as a means to reach a different place apart from now, where perhaps there is more calm, more peace, more happiness, more enlightenment, all of which we see is lying somewhere else, apart from where we are in this moment. This desire to be somewhere else arises most strongly in those moments in our present experience that are most uncomfortable or disturbing to us. Equally, when this desire to be somewhere else arises, that is the degree of struggle we find with where we are. In the midst of the disturbing, in the midst of the unpleasant, in the midst of the challenging, of the greatest difficulties, the greatest challenges in our life, is to know a sense of contentment and balance in that moment. Because everything within us, our thoughts tell us, this is not good enough. Our bodies, our feelings, our minds tell us, this is not where we want to be. This is not who we want to be. And that all we want lies in a different moment, a different place, that is going to bring us a different experience. Now, meditation is not a path to somewhere else. It's also not a path of rejection or striving. It's a path of returning again and again and again to right now. When we hear this and understand this, we may even conclude, well, <clears throat> this is the wrong tradition. This is the wrong path for me. If, I, if this is where I wanted to be, this is where who I wanted to be, I wouldn't come on retreat. We may feel so much dissatisfaction with where we are now that we are constantly driven to be apart and to be separate. In my experience, in my understanding, no one has ever bypassed themselves <laughs> on the way to peace or on the way to enlightenment or on the way to understanding. If someone had ever discovered a means to do this, they would surely be the most adored teacher and tradition in the world. Where we are now <coughs> is the compost in which understanding grows. 
who we are now, offers us the invitation to discover new pathways of happiness and compassion. What we encounter in this moment holds the seeds of new possibilities, new understandings of reality. Dogen once said, meditation is not a way to enlightenment, nor is it a method of achieving anything at all. It is peace and blessedness in itself. It is the actualization of wisdom, the ultimate truth of the oneness of all things. Now, how many times have we heard in our practice and our experience that meditation is the art of learning to be with what is, that peace is not the absence of challenge, but the capacity to be with what is without prejudice or judgment. We hear time and time again that meditation is learning to see things the way that they actually are and to live in harmony with that. We have heard endlessly that meditation is not about rearranging and remodeling the contents of our mind or our experience to suit our preferences and desires. But that meditation is about learning to rest with balance and openness and understanding in every moment. This, of course, makes very logical intellectual sense, and we do frequently nod our heads very wisely and sagely, particularly in those moments when we are not disturbed or not craving anything at all. In the next moment, a sensation or an experience or a thought can arise that holds even the slightest hint of being possibly unpleasant. And we see how quickly and how readily we jump out of this moment and seek for a fragile refuge in fantasy or in avoidance or in daydreams. Or something looms on the horizon which seems to hold a promise of being somewhat alluring or uh, offers something that we don't have. And what is our relationship to this moment? This moment is no longer good enough. It doesn't offer us anything. In fact, it can seem that our entire sense of happiness and well-being rests upon achieving or making contact with this person or experience that we desperately want. A staying in touch, <clears throat> learning to stay in touch, is a lesson that we learn not just once in our lives. This is a lesson we learn again and again and again to learn the wisdom of being close to learn the wisdom of not being separate. There are so many experiences and so many situations in our lives and in our inner world which hold no certainties. You can be in the midst of physical experiences which are painful. You never know when they're going to end. 
You can be in the midst of grieving. You never know when this will be complete. You can be in the midst of struggling with someone in your life, and you never know when there will be resolution. There are endless experiences, outwardly and inwardly, that hold no clear definitions of resolution, of ending, of completions. They are times of not knowing, times of great uncertainty. These are the times particularly when we are asked to stay in touch. This is something, in my own experience, I've, this year has been a wonderful teacher for me in this, less, in this way. In September last year, I, I slipped a disc in my neck, which meant, you know, if you've ever done that, you know, it's, it's not fun. It's, it's actually, it's an unpleasant experience that goes on and on and on. And it's actually, it's this kind of unrelenting sense of pain. Now, I don't know what you have discovered in your life. I quickly discovered that if you have something which is a problem, this world simply abounds with good advice. <laughs> there is so much good advice out there. And some of it is extraordinarily helpful. There is no doubt. What I found happening in my experience is that I began to join together, very gradually and very slowly, together with experts and good advice, all cooperating together in wanting to find a solution. The underlying agenda in wanting to find a solution was wanting this to end. Now, on one level, this is totally natural. You know, none of us are here to be infatuated with pain or you know, to, to look how much we can suffer or, you know, how well we can bear it. But that agenda of wanting something to end and wanting to find a solution, I actually experienced as an agenda which can extraordinarily get in the way of being in touch. Because everything comes to rest on this ending. It's like life doesn't begin until this ends. You know we experience this in our meditation also. The other thing that happens is that the moment that we want something to end, we remove ourselves from it and it becomes an event or an experience that we are no longer in relationship with. It becomes an event or an experience that is happening to me. It is happening to me. I have kind of removed myself from it and in that surrendered relatedness and in surrendering relatedness equally surrendering inner empowerment, the capacity to heal, the capacity to be with all that is born of staying in touch. There came a point I know in my own experience when um, I suddenly realized that this was happening, that actually, you know, I'd wanted this to end so much that I was no longer with it. And this, I found, for me, was remarkably liberating, you know, to surrender the whole desire of wanting this to end. In fact, I would learn to get up in the morning, and I would say, oh, wonderful, welcome, the pain is here, you know. Bring your friends, you know, we'll have a little party, we'll have a little get-together, you know. The pain is still here, fine, you know, the pain is here. It was remarkably um, 
transforming. And you know those things that I talk about all the time? Learning to welcome what is? Well, there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. Every exception becomes a divorce, an exile. There are no exceptions. And doesn't mean to cherish pain, it doesn't mean to cherish the unpleasant, but to learn that the basis of all transformation is actually having that willingness to welcome what is. Staying in touch with a light and gentle and yet with a heartfelt commitment is one of our greatest challenges and our greatest teachers. The poet Rilke once said, I don't want to get rid of my demons because my angels will depart also. Staying in touch with the pleasant. Now this never actually seems like a terribly onerous task for us. A pleasant mental state, a pleasant feeling, a pleasant meditation, a pleasant encounter with another person. We want to be there. We want to enjoy this. We want to make it last. And it is true that both in our inner and outer worlds there is much that will come to us that delights us and gladdens us and that we appreciate. But without wisdom, we don't even know what it means to stay in touch with that which is pleasant. Because of the underlying mission of wanting this to stay the same, of wanting eternity to be within it. We may feel that we are in harmony with the present moment, but we are not in harmony with life. If there is clinging or grasping onto the pleasant, we may be fully connected with that current sensation, but we are struggling with life, with the intrinsic rhythms of life which tell us that even this moment that we delight in is in the process of changing into something else. Staying in touch is about connectedness, about relatedness, about sensitivity. Everything we do in meditation is about staying connected. This is also why meditation practice is at times so very difficult for us. Because disconnection can become the way of our lives. And I feel disconnection is the chronic illness of our culture. In some ways it is understandable we are surrounded by a world in which there is so much pain in so many different forms of violence, of hunger, of anger, of homelessness, so many lost spirits. And we can feel a tremendous despair about this degree of pain and feel the need even to close down. It is difficult to stay open and present and balanced in the midst of that which we feel so deeply. So sometimes we choose to disconnect. This one in San Francisco did a spent some time in order to write a book about the experience of being homeless. 
And there was one person who said to her, you know what the greatest pain of being homeless is? It's not the fact that you may get hassled by the police. It's not the fact that you never know where you can sleep the next night. It's not the fact that people uh, turn away from you. It's not the fact that you, don't, you never know where it's going to be dangerous. She said, the true pain of being homelessness is that no one ever longer, no one ever any longer looks you in the eye. We can disconnect in many ways, sometimes out of habit and sometimes out of fear. From our bodies, we disconnect, feel strangers to ourselves, not at home, not at ease in our bodies sometimes out of habit. Have you noticed sometimes that you are walking? In your mind, you have already arrived at your destination. The body is not even a participant in that journey. We can act and then we can speak. And even in that moment of acting in our, and speaking, in our thoughts, we have already moved on to the next moment and the next contact. Sometimes we disconnect from our bodies out of fear or aversion. We don't like them. We don't like the way they are, the way they look, the way they appear. Sometimes we're afraid of not being in control, afraid of aging, of sickness, of, of death. Sometimes there is aversion for our bodies because we have internalized models or images of perfection models that always tell us that our bodies as they are again are not good enough there's that wonderful line that says mr duffy lived a short distance from his body <laughs> it can be that way for us in our lives we experience disconnection also in relationship to our minds and feelings sometimes our mental states our emotions our thoughts, our feelings, we, we sense almost that they ambush us, that they just happen to us. Sometimes we fear the power of our minds, and sometimes we resent them because of the lack of choice that seems to be uh, available to us. I mean, did you get up this morning and say, it's a great day for obsessing, in it, in it? Yeah, I think I'll be dull today, you know, it sounds like fun, you know, or it's about time I was in a rage, you know. It's, where does it come from? I mean, how many did you choose today? You know, how much did you choose today? And they just seem to pop up, you know, almost like it's happening to a stranger. Almost like it's happening to a stranger. Sometimes we don't even know what we're thinking or feeling. Isn't that an amazing experience? If you experience that today, you know that suddenly the bell will go in the meditation. I think, boy, that sitting went fast. <laughs> in it. And you realize well, you have this big gap. You know, like maybe even a 45-minute gap. You weren't here. You know? And if you try and think, what was I thinking about? I don't know. Isn't that an extraordinary experience? That the mind can have this life, you know, that seems to be inaccessible to us? 
sometimes in those moments are, you know, we have these wild storms sometimes, you know, these incredible things, you know, fantasies of meditation, and we're out murdering somebody in the back lawn, you know. And then we come, we kind of wake up and we say, oh, that's not me, I'm not myself today. <laughs> Is it somebody else? You know, as if we even know what that means. The sense of disconnection can be so pervasive. There's that wonderful Zen line that says, Though I'm in Kyoto when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. <laughs> I don't even know we're there. The disconnection actually can be deeply painful. The suffering of loneliness, of alienation, of mistrust, of feeling apart haunts so many relationships. We long in our lives to know what it means to be connected, to touch the heart of another person, to be touched. And yet this most elemental aspiration can seem to one that is so very, very difficult to fulfill. And then there is also a deeper level, almost an existential level of disconnection or a feeling of homelessness that grieves us on a personal level and on a collective level can fill our world with so much hopelessness. So many countless people feel wonder at the lack of, of meaning, the lack of heartfelt connection they experience in their lives with others and with themselves. And all equally that sense of homelessness, of feeling exiled somehow from any true sense of, of mystery within our lives. Disconnection being out of touch does grieve us and we react. Feeling unrelated, we feel ambushed, not only by our own bodies and minds, we feel ambushed by life. And in our reactions, we can often assume some very extreme positions. One of them is the position of the victim. The feeling of being submerged, of powerlessness, of frustration, of despair. And the other extreme is the position of being the master in the face of the unpredictable. We can be on the uncertain. We can become the victim or we can become the master, trying to control, to dominate, to force our will upon our experience. They are positions or extremes of either succumbing or overcoming. Often we find ourselves locked into them. Or sometimes we are adopt, tempted to adopt what we might even call the middle way, which is simply the path of avoidance. You know, and frequently we adopt avoidance as the mechanism from departing from the moment of our, and from ourselves. Avoidance becomes a way of jumping out of the moment, jumping out of our bodies, jumping out of our minds, jumping out of the moment into somewhere else that appears to offer us some greater refuge, 
some sense of safety or pleasure. Sometimes we even jump into the life of another person, that it is easier to live their life, you know, their concerns, their issues, than it is to be in touch with ourselves. Our inner mechanisms of avoidance tend to take place more in the form of fantasy, of dreams, of stories. The more unpleasant, the more challenging we find the moment we're in is the degree that we are tempted to jump into past, into future, or into fantasy in the present, particularly past and future. The promises of, of wonder that come from the past, or the dreams of the perfect moment that seem to lie in the future. Now, on one level, avoidance seems so logical, I think, you know, because we ask ourselves, you know, why should I stay in touch with the difficult? You know, why should I stay in touch with the challenging when it's so easy to avoid? I mean, it's really easy. I mean, we th say to ourselves, why should I stay in touch with this aching knee? This is ridiculous. You know, try and explain it to your mother, you know? <laughs> why should I stay in touch with my aching knee, my chaotic mind, my sore back, you know, my confusions, when I can depart so easily into a greater comfort zone? Well, we stay in touch because staying in touch is about being free. That is why we stay in touch, because it really is about being free. Those times when we avoid and disconnect, we give power and authority to whatever it is we are trying to disconnect from. We give power and authority to them. We say that this, this me, this mind, this experience, this moment is greater, stronger, more powerful than my capacity to be with it. So therefore, I must leave. Therefore, I must leave. I must flee. I must depart. Or else we create an enemy or an opponent out of the difficult and the challenging, and we enter into a battle in which there's always going to be a winner and always a loser. And unfortunately, the loser often tends to be us when we are engaged in struggle. When we disconnect or avoid out of fear, we build fences and boundaries in our lives beyond which we cannot travel. Beyond which we cannot travel. We are contained within them. And being contained within any boundary that is built out of fear and built out of that sense of I can't or I cannot, then in that containment, it diminishes our freedom. It diminishes our freedom. There is always that edge, that boundary, that fence beyond which we feel we are not free to travel. It diminishes our freedom. When we disconnect from ourselves, we are exiling ourselves from ourselves. We are not at home inwardly, and therefore we are not at home anywhere in this world. And avoidance can become the habit of a lifetime. Staying in touch asks for a tremendous courage and clarity, a tremendous openness. As sometimes we, we want to stay in touch and we try to stay in touch, 
But even sometimes in doing so, we can have a hidden agenda, you know. If you've got a mind that's wild, you know, and you've tried every other strategy and none of them work, you know, and we sometimes come to that point, well, we say, I'm just going to stay in touch with this. But even that can be carried by a wish that if I stay in touch with it, it'll go away, you know, or it'll turn into something else. You know, or it'll be some sort of solution. It's not easy for us to accept that it is not possible to fix all things. There is not always a possibility of finding the perfect prescription, the perfect answer, the perfect solution. And many of our struggles with our lives and with our, uh, ourselves are really an attempt to control the uncontrollable and to reach a destination that offers safety rather than freedom. Now, staying in touch is not in any way an invitation to resignation or to passivity or to despair. At times, to stay in touch means to be incredibly clear. It doesn't mean disregarding the wisdom the offerings of others. But staying in touch is essentially about being related. It is a way of being which is remarkably alive and vital. To be open without conditions is to know what it means to be truly at home in our bodies, our minds, our hearts, the events of our lives, and life itself. The times when we find it mostly a challenge to stay in touch are times when there is some sense of struggle or difficulty. At times we are tempted to define those moments of challenge as times as having, of having a problem. I think it is very helpful to examine what the nature is of this idea of having a problem. What is a problem? Sometimes a problem means to us that we feel that there's a lack of clarity or understanding. Sometimes we know we have a problem because of the amount of struggle or aversion or resistance that's there. Most often we feel that we have a problem or know that we have a problem because of a sense of unpleasantness or pain. For example, we very rarely complain of having a problem with loving kindness or, you know, I've got a problem with compassion. A problem means something, there's a very personal relationship that is formed to this moment. It is a difficult relationship. Because when we have a problem, we, are, we have this mixed feeling. We want, or this mixed experience, we want to get out and we can't. We want to get away from and we are stuck. We want to be free from something and we feel imprisoned. This is the nature of many of these moments that we describe as having a problem. In 
the aversion or the resistance that arises, we distance and separate ourselves from what we are experiencing. And the truth is, we don't want to experience it. We don't want to be close. Because in that sense of having a problem, we already have a conclusion about ourselves, a position of ownership or of being owned by. Think of it today, you know. You maybe felt dull. Maybe you had a pain in your knee. Maybe you had a thought pattern that was very repetitive. Well, it's not, it's not pleasant, you know? And so we say, you know, oh, you know, I have a problem with this. What does that mean? I want to get away from it and I can't let go. Or we feel that it owns us. Or we have a relationship to it in which we own it because we say, I am. Think of our meditation as a microcosm of our lives. You know, perhaps there's a person in your life that you struggle with and yet you need to be with. What is that relationship about? What is the nature of that relationship? The distance creates a sensation or a feeling that nothing can ever change. That is what one of the effects of distance. We have the perception that this will never change. This will always be like this. I will always be like this. This relationship will always be like this. In fact, we are so distant that we cannot even notice the very subtle and obvious changes that are taking place in every moment because we can't allow them to really know those changes. We need to be close. What difference would it make if we had the willingness in our experience here in our experience in our lives, to set aside the distance, to set aside the resistance, to set aside the desire to be away from, to turn towards that which we have aversion for or fear and to see what it might offer us. Fear and courage, doubt and trust, clarity and confusion, disconnection or communion. Superficially, these pairs seem like opposites. We think that, yes, courage will come after I've got rid of the fear and trust will come after I've overcome the doubt and clarity will be there after I've worked on the confusion. But what we accept as polarized extremes are actually the yin and the yang of our lives. Trust is found in exactly the same place as doubt. You know, courage is found in exactly the same place as fear. Equanimity is found in the midst of imbalance. As human beings, I feel we really need to stay in touch with ourselves. We really need to know what it means to touch others. So much that we long for in terms of happiness and intimacy and depth and relatedness is born of feeling in touch, able to meet with ease and an open heart all moments. How does it begin staying in touch? 
That is our lesson here. How do we learn? How do we begin to stay in touch? One primary way is that we have to be no longer satisfied and no longer accepting of disconnection. We have to be deeply, deeply, passionately even, dissatisfied with disconnection and distance and alienation. And we equally, I think, we express that dissatisfaction, which is a positive dissatisfaction. It's not a judgment. It's simply a positive dissatisfaction. And we express that, I feel, by no longer consenting to the invitations to endlessly jump away from ourselves, to jump away from this moment, to jump into something else, because it is so easy to do. And at some point we have to simply say, you know, it's not to say that the jumping will stop, but we all know how we can further that jumping. And we all know also that capacity to say, enough. What does it mean to begin again, to return again, to start anew, to see again, to be present again, to no longer consent to apartness, but to foster the commitment I feel in our hearts to be present, to be, wake, to be awake. And staying in touch begins with where we are. You know, there's not a better moment to be awake in. There's not a better moment to learn how to let go. There's not a better moment to be clear in or to be connected in that thought of, or that fantasy about there being a better moment is what really sustains disconnection. You know, we think, oh, after my mind no longer troubles me, you know, or after this dullness has go gone away, or after this person that disturbs me has disappeared from my life, oh, then I'll stay in touch. It's a much better moment to be awakened, we tell ourselves. I can't tell you what a wonderful relief it is to surrender the notion that your world is ever going to be perfect. That you're ever going to come to a point, you know, we have the perfect body, the perfect mind, the perfect personality, the perfect relationship, and that everything is going to be perfect in your world. Because can you ever define perfection as the absence of the disturbing? It's not, it is not true. Is not what truth is about. I mean, if perfection was defined by the absence of the disturbing or challenging, there would be nowhere for us to learn. No life will always bring us another moment that asks of us compassion and generosity and patience and forgiveness. And this is the richness of our lives. This is the richness of our journey. It's not about reaching a place where we are perfectly compassionate and perfectly wise and perfectly understanding. The richness of our lives is in the immediacy and the willingness to accept those invitations that this is the moment that we learn and feel the meaning of compassion, that we learn and feel the meaning of patience, that we learn and feel the meaning of forgiveness not to think in terms of arriving somewhere. 
story I'd like to read you that I think illustrates. There was a man who died and found himself in a beautiful place surrounded by every conceivable comfort. A white-jacketed man came to him and said, you can have anything you choose, any food, any pleasure, any kind of entertainment. The man was delighted, and for days he sampled all the delicacies and experiences of which he dreamed on earth. But one day he grew bored with it, with all of it, and called the attendant to him, and he said, I'm tired of all of this. I need something to do. What kind of work can you give me? The attendant sadly shook his head and replied, I'm sorry, sir. That's the one thing we can't do for you. There's no work for you here. To which the man answered, well, that's a fine thing. I might as well be in hell. The attendant said softly, where do you think you are? (laughs) (laughs) To be never disturbed is to be deprived of the possibility of deepening, of wakefulness, of growing. Perfection is never described or can be defined as the absence of the challenging. Perfection is about being with what is, allowing it to reveal itself. Staying in touch begins in the moment that we are present and willing to be awake. This is all that our practice is about. And sometimes it's difficult. You know, sometimes the beginning of meditation is likened to lighting a fire, that when you first light the fire, you know, looking for warmth and light, all you get instead is smoke in your eyes. But you keep tending the fire, carefully blowing into it, looking after it. And then the light and the warmth of the fire begins to come through. There are deeper levels of staying in touch. You can begin to sense that that is what we are doing in our practice. We are beginning to touch our breath. We're beginning to touch our experience. We're beginning to touch ourselves and touch our world with attentiveness. And initially, we can feel somewhat apart. You know, we can feel very much as if we're the breather or the watcher or the looker or the experiencer. And we can feel this this sense of a gap between the moment that we're in and our experience of it. And yet, as we continue to touch ourselves, to touch our breath, to touch our bodies, to touch this moment with attentiveness, that sense of apartness and that sense of separateness truly does begin to dissolve. And the breather is simply merged into the breath, and the breath breathes itself. And the listener simply merges into the sound. And the sound just hears itself. You know, and the seer simply merges into what is seen. And there is just the seeing. And that depth of oneness, that depth of communion, truly begins to reveal what it means to actually be in touch. Li Po once said, the birds have vanished into the sky and now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and I, until only the mountain remains.
we could take two minutes quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.